0: Again, Father, it's a blessing to gather together as the people of God and to acknowledge you, to acknowledge your presence, to submit to your authority, to recognize that without you, Father, we have no hope. And so as we look today again at the word, we ask that you will open the truths to to us and that we will be receptive. Lord, we would, in Jesus' name, uh, resist the hand of the evil one and pray that he will have no impact or influence this morning in this class or in any class or in the service which is taking place at this hour, but that your angels will superintend uh, the ministry of your word today and your Holy Spirit will be working in each of our hearts. And we'll give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter 37, verse 9. Genesis 37, verse 9. Now he had still another dream, and related it to his brothers, and said, Lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and to his brothers. His father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you've had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Last week, we noted in the previous verses uh, Joseph relating the first dream uh, that he had of the barley sheaves being harvested and then the uh, barley sheaves, the eleven barley sheaves bowing down to Joseph's barley sheaf, and uh, this this really teed off his brothers because they knew directly the implication of uh, that particular dream, and and now we have another dream that is very similar, only in many ways somewhat worse than the first. Now, uh, this is obviously a short time later. Uh, probably a few days, maybe a week or two later. We, we don't know the time frame here, but somewhat after the uh, one was resula- related the first time. And, and apparently the venue is a little different because in this case, at least, we know Jacob is there to hear it, and there's no implication that he was there to her- to hear the first dream. It's interesting that what this implies to us is that Joseph is either blind at this point to the fact that the the hatred in his brothers uh, is rising to a danger level, or he is actually taunting them by what he is doing here. He seems to be at least blindly plunging ahead here. I don't see how he could have been so blind as to not have noticed their reaction the first time to uh, the relating of the dream, and now he seems to exacerbate the whole situation. I think in the case of this dream, as well as in the case of the first dream, God gave him the dream for his own edification, and he should have kept it to himself, or at least not related it in, at this time and in this particular situation. This dream is, as I said, worse than the first dream, because here he is even implying that his mother and his father do homage to him, At least that's the implication of the dream. It became very clear to the whole family, clear to Jacob, clear to uh, the brothers and everyone who was present, that the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were a clear reference to Jacob, to Leah, uh, would have to be Leah because Rachel is dead, uh, and to his 11 brothers, even including little Benjamin here. Notice Jacob's reaction. Even Jacob couldn't tolerate the implications of this dream. Although Joseph was his favorite son, this this, this seeming arrogance was unacceptable even to Jacob on behalf of his beloved son. So Jacob strongly rebukes Joseph here, intimating that, what are you saying? That the founders of the Israelite clan, the very transmitters, of the Abrahamic covenant. We are going to bow down to you in a slavish way, slavish way. Remember when the, the scripture talks about or infers uh, the bowing down, it's, it's literally a prostrating of oneself on the ground in, in front of this other person as if in worship. And so this was <laughs> intolerable thinking as far as Jacob was concerned. It seemed to everyone that what Joseph was doing was arrogating himself and demeaning his parents and demeaning his brothers. Maybe Jacob was beginning to catch a little inkling here of what the brothers were going through, of of what his other sons were going through as a result of Joseph's uh, attitude. The hatred of Joseph by his brothers is now being fanned into a white heat by this situation. And we'll see what that means. But notice, there's a really important statement, I think, at the end of verse 11. Verse 11 says, And his brothers were jealous of him, that's putting it mildly, but his father kept the saying in mind. Although Jacob rebuked Joseph and said, What is this you're saying? What is the implication of all of this? He did not just dismiss the whole dream out of hand. He could have said, boy, you you must have eaten something bad last night, you know, or, or, you know, you, whatever. He rebuked his son, but at the same time, he didn't put the whole thing out of his mind. It reminded me of Mary. Remember Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, we're told that uh, this event would happen, that event would happen, Jesus would say this, or this would be said about him, and the scripture tells us that she hid those things in her heart. And so we have Jacob here uh, actually putting it back in his mind and filing it there, this dream, because it may have been from God. And it could be that one day his favorite son would become an important leader. That may be the implication, even though what it sounded like at the moment was too much to bear. Let's read on here, beginning at verse 12. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. Then he said to him, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, that is, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him. Behold, he was wandering in the field and the man asked him, what are you looking for? And he said, I am looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. And, he, and the man said, they, move, they have moved from here for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Certainly we're talking about several months later now, after the events of the relating of the dreams. And in this passage, I think we can, first of all, uh, from looking at verse 12, make some rather interesting assumptions. First of all, since Jacob is sending Joseph out to discover the welfare of his brothers, I think we can safely assume that except for little Benjamin, all the brothers were gone. None were residing there at Hebron. They were all gone. Because it would have been very unlikely, in my opinion at least, that Jacob would have sent Joseph if there had been another brother around to send. Because it would be, of course, uh, a dangerous journey. Any journey in those days was dangerous. Uh, You know, we we even sometimes are not... We we even maybe have a little bit of fear of making a long-distance journey. And in those days, they had much more reason... Uh, to fear now it's possible it's possible that servants were sent with Jake uh, with Joseph. But I think as we read on through the passage and as we look at it, we discover that was probably not so. He could have sent servants along with him to guard him and to make sure everything went well, but apparently that does not happen because other events that transpire. Uh, as we go down through this chapter, uh, would have been very unlikely had there been manpower with, uh, with Joseph. A second assumption I think that we can derive from this 12th verse, that uh, since all 10 of his older brothers were or seemed to be involved in pasturing the flock, that we're talking about a major move of animals here that probably very few animals were left in the Hebron region, and the vast flocks were moved in mass up north. Thousands and thousands of animals. Uh, Obviously, that might be some of the reason why Joseph could just ask anybody who happened to be walking by where his brothers were, because they probably wouldn't have been missed. (laughs) Uh, Had they gone through, they would have been noticed, because of the vast herds that they would have been leading through the area. Thirdly, Why why did they travel so far? Why did they move all the way from Hebron all the way back up to the region of Shechem? And we're talking about a distance that would require about a week to move those large flocks that far. And I think what this is implying that there is a drought or at least a very arid uh, time going on and that the uh, fields around Hebron to the north and the south of Hebron Uh, had been overextended, and they were not able to uh, provide for the size of the flocks. And so they've had to move at a far distance in order to provide pasturage for for all these animals. A fourth uh, assumption that seems to come out of this is that Jacob must trust Joseph and and certainly we assume that in a general way he'd trust Joseph, but I mean, trust his skill and his judgment enough to send this young man on this long journey alone. He's about 18. Now, in those days, 18 was a full-fledged adult. You had all the adult responsibilities. I mean, there was, as I've mentioned before, no such thing as teenage in those days. You were either a child or an adult, and there was nothing in between. And, and, And so, certainly he was old enough, but... Was he skilled enough? Was his judgment good enough? Apparently, Jacob felt that this was so. We, we have to remember that peace in order and order have not characterized this part of the world for much of history. You read down through history and you'll discover that chaos and warfare and unrest has been very characteristic of the whole Mesopotamian area, particularly the area of Palestine because it was often out on the fringe of the empire, whether it be the Egyptian empire or the Assyrian or the Babylonian, whatever the empire was, it tended to be out on the fringe area and, and so sort of a frontier-like area in many ways. It's not much better today, is it? Uh, the tragedy of the last few days is, uh, you know, you just know what to, to make of all of this. But um, we're still told to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And then finally, think about the fact now, these brothers are moving the flock back to Shechem of all places. They had fled from Shechem just two or three years before because they had massacred the whole male population and and stolen all of, or, you know, (laughs) abducted all the rest of the population and left the place desolate and deserted. And now they're moving back into this area, this, this, this region of uh, where they had earned such infamy. Well, I think what this tells us is either the city of Shechem is still unoccupied or the terror of the Lord is still on the Canaanites relative to Jacob and his family. And I think it's probably more the latter that would make a difference here. Now, to travel from Hebron to Shechem, is a distance of approximately 50 miles. As I mentioned before, it would take uh, close to a week to, to move vast herds that far, because particularly in a time of drought where the amount of grass was relatively scarce, uh, you'd have to move the, the, the flocks slowly. But for Joseph, that particular distance could be, could be covered fairly quickly. Now if he was on foot, which seems to be implied here, Uh, it would have taken him about two days. If he had been on camel, he could have done it in one day. So Joseph makes this trip to the north, and uh, that Jacob would send him on such a journey of that distance indicates that he has considerable concern about the flocks and his other sons. I mean, this just isn't a kind of an off-the-hand thought. Hmm, I wonder what's going on with the guys, you know? So he's going to send Joseph. No, I don't think so. I think concern has set in. He hasn't heard from his other sons for a long time. What's going on? How come they haven't sent him word? How come they haven't informed him of their welfare? How come they haven't informed him as to whether they're finding good pasturage or not? They've just disappeared, and he's not heard from them. Now, of course, you could think one reason why he might not have heard. And, and that is that these sons do not love Jacob in the same sense as they might have had he not shown such obvious favoritism to Joseph. And by his obvious favoritism, he had, he had hurt his other sons and caused them to have a callousness, I think, towards their father. And so they don't seem to be as concerned about whether he knows what's happening or not. If he wants to know, he can just find out. And so that's exactly what he's doing here. Now going back again to the events of the first part of the chapter where Joseph related the dream of the barley sheaves, and then he related the dream about the sun, moon, and stars, and the reaction was so strong and so negative to these dreams, you might wonder why or how it is that Jacob would dare send Joseph alone to check on the welfare of these other sons of his. And I think that what this uh, indicates is that possibly we're talking about a span of several months between the events of the first part of the chapter and now. And, and Jacob assumes that the brothers have cooled off and, and they've let it pass and they've recognized that uh, there's nothing here to be concerned about. And so it will be okay for Joseph to go into their midst. Or it's very possible that uh, Jacob is really blind to the reaction of his sons to Joseph. Uh, you now, You'd wonder, how can you be so blind? But it's possible that he was, particularly since he kept, keeps seeming to heap it on. You know? You'd think if he really recognized the situation, he would soft-pedal his favoritism to Joseph, and try to go out of his way a little bit to show the care and concern for, the other, uh, for his other sons. But I, I think possibly, too, that the reason is, the, the, the same one that we talked about in the early part of the chapter, and that is, as long as Jacob was alive he probably believed that his sons would respect him enough that they would do Joseph no harm. Certainly, this was in his thinking. And so he felt it was okay to send Joseph up to find the brothers because they respect me, they honor me as the patriarch, and therefore, no matter what they feel about Joseph, they will continue to protect him. Whatever is the case, I think what's important for us to note here is that God allowed the events that we are going to read about to happen because God had a plan that he was going to bring about. He had a plan of salvation, speaking of it specifically to the events that would transpire in Joseph's life, and uh, he was to bring it about no matter what. Now, quite often you and I turn to the story of Job, don't we? especially when things get a little bit hard and we're wondering about the pressure that we're facing and we're wondering about why bad things seem to happen to God's people. After all, aren't we the king's kids? Aren't we kingdom kids? Aren't we princes and princesses? And as such, we're supposed to really have, mm, you know, strong lives and, and, and not a lot of problems and not a lot of trials and tribulations. So why do bad things happen to God's people sometimes? And so we go back to the book of Job. And we read about the story of Job, and this gives us a little insight into what's going on. But I think we can also turn to the story of Joseph and read the story of Joseph and understand what God is about. I think it's really important for us. Sometimes we don't really get this emphasis because if you read certain commentators, especially some of the older commentators, they have a tendency to to put people like Joseph up on a plane here and make them look like almost as if they were sinless. And uh, to me, I really don't think that is true. I I think Joseph is culpable here. I I think that Joseph is responsible for some of what happens to him here because of his own failings. Joseph was not perfect. Joseph was far from perfect. And so in that sense, you and I can relate to him. (laughs) Right because we are not perfect. We are far from it But what God is doing is through and in spite of Joseph's imperfections God is bringing about his plan in Joseph's life. I I Don't know about you, but there are times when I fail and I wonder why does God give a, a second thought about me? You know, I can't seem to keep it together if things go well, and all of a sudden I'm over here or I'm over there. And I assume that's probably a <clears throat> fairly common experience for most of us. And learned, we go to the story of Joseph and we find it's because God has a bigger plan than our little plan. And God is going to use us in that plan, and sometimes we're going to get roughed up along the way. We have to learn to implicitly trust God. It's really what it's all about to implicitly trust God. In God's eyes, you and I are no worse sinners than Joseph. We have to just constantly remind ourselves of that, that we are no worse sinners than Abraham, than Isaac, than Jacob, than Joseph, than Elijah, than Elisha, or any of the rest of them. Only Jesus himself was the perfect man. James keeps reminding us that Elijah was a man as we are. And yet he went before God, and God worked a mighty, in a mighty way. And, and the implication is, so he will in and through us. Because Elijah was no more esteemed in the eyes of God than we. We need to believe that God cares for us. Even when we fail, God cares for us. It's hard Sometimes for us to, to believe that, maybe, because we know in our own situation when somebody fails us, sometimes we don't say, oh, well, that's okay, I love you anyway. Sometimes we say, what a jerk, you know? This, this guy's not going to be a friend of mine anymore. Look what he's done to me, you know? Uh, but that isn't the way God is, and we can be eternally thankful for that. God's compassion. His loving kindness, it tells us in the Old Testament particularly, His loving kindness is everlasting. It doesn't come to an end. It's always there. And we need to depend upon that no matter how horrible the circumstances may be in which we find ourselves. Well, Joseph arrived at Shechem. I wonder if he stood and looked at the city or how much he thought about the events of two or three years before. Well, we don't know. He began to search for his brothers. They were obviously not around. You could hardly miss a flock of thousands, tens of thousands maybe, of sheep and goats. Couldn't find them. Looked around. They were nowhere to be seen. We've got to constantly remind ourselves that we're talking about a region of the world where everything is small compared to what we're used to. I mean, you could put Palestine into California about 15 times, the whole country from Dan to Beersheba and beyond. So you get a feeling that it's sort of like searching around in a small portion of Shasta County uh, and without all the tall mountains. And so it shouldn't be that difficult to find them if they're there. And so it, it, I, I think what he was doing was kind of wandering in ever-widening circles to try to find a, you know, catch a glimpse of where his brothers were. And the, the implication is that you know, he was just wandering out there, looking and not finding. But as he was wandering, he encounters a man. This man is not identified. We're not told who this man was or anything about this person. You look at that it's, to me, it's, it's very interesting. In verse 15, And a man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, What are you looking for? He said, I am looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. Then the man said, They have moved from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. Ever think much about that? It's possible this man was a Canaanite shepherd, and therefore had talked with the boys, and um, you know, shot the breeze about shepherding, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> whatever there was to shoot, uh, and uh, that he actually—I you know, mean, how close? You'd have to be pretty close to hear him say that. <clears throat> so he had to be in contact with him, and, and that's very possibly the scenario here, but. The thought came to me as I was studying this, you know, we possibly have an angelic uh, encounter here. This man's not identified, and this man knows a lot, and this man found Joseph wandering in the field. God, when there is no human means by which God can impact our lives and do what he wants to do, sometimes he will do it supernaturally. Scripture teaches us that sometimes we entertain angels unawares, and we've read many accounts of such a thing. And so I, I think it's at least a possibility here, it, you know, it doesn't really change the course of anything too much, other than to know that God is superintending what's going on in Joseph's life. Now that can be true, whether it's an angelic uh, visitation or, or if it was simply a Canaanite shepherd. Either way. God is looking out for Joseph and and God is directing Joseph so that he will find his brothers. But to me it's encouraging to think about the fact that we may be wandering someplace, but God knows where we are and God will send the one along to direct us on the path that we're supposed to go. God will show us the way. And he may use a human being. He may use a sermon. He may use a passage of scripture that you've read uh, this morning or sometime recently. Or he may use a lesson or whatever God may use. Word of advice from a godly friend. Or God might send some form of angelic visit to us to guide us on our way. Joseph was not wandering as far as God was concerned. God knew where he was. And God said, This is the way, go this way, by whatever method he used here. Apparently, the grass around Shechem was worn out, was used up. And so the brothers had moved north to Dothan. Now, Dothan was never a particularly large town. Today, it's just a small tell over on the side of the valley, come out of the Valley of Jezreel down towards uh, Shechem. You go through a, a valley that's, oh shoot five miles wide, not terribly wide, maybe not even that wide as you come down through this area. And, and so in, in many ways, it's physically a lot like Shechem, small town in the midst of a relatively small valley. And so they moved down or up, actually, northward uh, to Dothan, about 16 miles between Shechem and Dothan. So that would have been another couple of days' uh, journey for the flocks as they, they moved them. For Joseph, it would have added another day once you talk about the wandering around there looking for them. Certainly he is now three days out from home, at least. What does this mean? This means he is far from the protection of his father. The influence of his father is far away. And that has a lot to do with what transpires next. Verse 18, When they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come, let us kill him, and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say, a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this, and rescued him out of their hands, and said, let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the varicolored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. Joseph is very innocently looking for his brothers. And he sees them in the distance, is walking toward them. As he did, what was he thinking? Well, we have no way of knowing, but certainly he was not thinking that 18 years of pastoral life was going to come to a screeching halt. That his life was going to be radically transformed In just a few hours and that shortly he would never see the promised land again in this life certainly those were not thoughts going through his head had he known that or had he thought that do you suppose he would have continued to go find his brothers he would have said "Whoop! there they are he going back I found them they're up there by Dothan They're doing well, I think. No, certainly he would not have continued on. God knew. God knew exactly what was going to happen, so why didn't God tell him? Why didn't God send an angel and say, look, better not go there. These guys are going to try to take your life. Why why did God keep him in the dark? Well, God knew, of course, that if Joseph understood what his brothers were about and what they were planning, that Joseph would have turned tail and run. He would have fled back to the safety of his home under the umbrella of his father. But God prevented him from thinking those thoughts apparently at all and from believing that anything that was bad was about to happen to him because God had a plan for Joseph. God's plan was to use Joseph to save two nations and to elevate Joseph to great uh, position of power and authority, and he didn't want Joseph fouling it up. So he kept him in the dark. God sometimes keeps you and me in the dark so that we won't foul up his plan. You know, often we say, boy, if I'd just known what was gonna happen, I would have done this, that, and the other thing. That's just exactly the point. Now, sometimes it might have been better had we known it ahead of time because what we did was stupid. But hopefully, you know, I mean, Joseph is not doing anything stupid here. He'd already done it. And uh, he will now reap the, the consequences of this. We could, of course, argue and say, oh, yes, but the trouble Joseph got in was because God had this great plan for him. And when I get into trouble, it's because I'm stupid or I've sinned or I've done something bad and, and God just lets me... Flounder around because of, of the bad person that I that I am. But that is not true. We could easily argue that Joseph got into trouble because of his sin, because of his arrogance, be, because of the attitude he displayed towards his brothers. And, and therefore, this is the consequences. Of that. Well, that's very possible, but God used him anyway. And that's really where it all comes down to, finally. Not the failure of today or the failure of yesterday, but the fruit of what God wants to do tomorrow, in us and through us. If God wanted to use only perfect people to accomplish his plan, he wouldn't have any candidates. He has to use imperfect people, such as you and I, and such as Joseph. And the point then becomes, no matter what comes our way, no matter what comes our way, even if we view it as the fruit of our failure, as the consequences of our sin, God is seeking to bring us to the place of implicit trust and obedience. This is the story of Scripture from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. The focus of Scripture is, as summed up in that song, trust and obey, for there is no other way. That's what God's about. He's about bringing us to the place of implicit trust and exquisite obedience. And He's not whacking us down and saying, you'll never make it because he wants to, uh, to bring us to that place. And it seems like we have to keep relearning this truth because we finally get it through our heads and we start doing it right, and then, whang, we're off somewhere else. And God very patiently keeps shepherding us back into the way he wants us to go. We really, I think, for us it's important... to to remember these truths because there's an awful lot of stuff being taught out there today in the name of Christianity which which gives us a a completely different idea of what God's about. Let me uh, just turn to a passage that you know well in the fourth chapter of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. But I rejoiced both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The real focus of God's purpose in our lives is to bring us to that understanding, that we can do all things through him who strengthens us, that we need to be content, whether it be in poverty or prosperity, whether it be in hunger or being filled. Whatever our situation, we need to learn to be content because God's goal in life is not to make us happy, but to make us obedient, to trust in Him. And and we know how difficult that is because look what God did for Israel. Over and over again, God worked great miracles for Israel and still... They would doubt him. All that he did to bring them to the edge of Canaan, out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, miraculously providing for them. And they stand there on the edge of Canaan, and they can't even believe him to give them the power to conquer the land. Sure, there are giants in the land, strong walls. But how can they compare to a body of water dozens of miles wide, that they, that they crossed by miracle. Well, dare we p- point the finger too hard, we have to look at ourselves and recognize what God has done for us, and yet there are times when we just can't believe him for the next step. We wonder how we're going to do it. How can it happen? But God is patient. The change for Joseph was going to be radical. Can you imagine anything more radical? Save death itself? Here we have the pampered son of a wealthy chieftain who is going to be transformed into nothing more than merchandise in Egypt. You imagine the humiliation of that? But you can't do this to me. I'm 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 the son of a wealthy chieftain. God has promised the whole Land of Canaan to me, and you're treating me as if I'm a hunk of meat to give to the highest bidder. His protests, of course, fell on deaf ears, even amongst his own brothers. What we have here is a riches to rags to riches story. Kind of interesting when you think about that. Well, when you're a shepherd, one of the things you are is alert. If you're not alert as a shepherd, you lose a lot of sheep. And so these brothers display their acuity by the fact that they notice Joseph coming long before he gets there. He's probably a mile or more away, coming down the road. And they spot him. Obviously, they weren't around just coochie-coochie-cooing the, the sheep. You know, They were watching the horizon, looking for danger. And they spotted him coming. And the acuity of their eyesight is, is, is clear by the fact they knew who he was. They knew that varicolored tunic or that long-sleeved tunic, whatever all it was. Well, and so they had enough time to, at least for the brothers that were nearby, to gather together, you know. Get over here, guys. And they talked about their brother Joseph. They plotted against him. They had probably talked about him many, many times before. You can just imagine, can't you? It's human nature. And they had probably said some very, very mean things, and they had probably talked about knocking him off before. I don't think this was a new thought at all to them. But now was their chance because he was so far from home. And anything could happen to someone who's walked three days through an unruly land. You can bet that when they're saying, when they make the statement there, here comes this dreamer, that they say it with a sneer, with hatred in their voice. What's interesting is the Hebrew here means literally, here comes the Lord of dreams. Baal is the word used. Baal, which means Lord. Here is the Lord of dreams. The master dreamer himself is coming Shall we not bow down to him, this master dreamer? The implication was, of course, he was good for nothing, but having self-exalting dreams. What is about to happen is the result of unleashed, pent-up hatred, passion against this beloved son of their father, Jacob. Does God not know? Certainly God knows what they meant for evil. Joseph would later said, God intended for good. That statement by Joseph, made much later, after all these things, of course, have transpired, is a very, very important statement for us to remember because I think it applies over and over again in our lives. Ephesians tells us that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and power powers, and they mean it for evil. In every instance, they mean it for evil, but God turns it for good. And so God turns it for good in Joseph's life, but he sure didn't see it then at all. The brothers were carrying out an act that God would use for good, but that did not absolve them from their sin. What they did was evil, and they would pay the price. They would go decades with it hanging heavy upon their conscience. And this shows up later when we read the encounter of Joseph with his brothers when he's down in Egypt. It just shows how heavily this hung upon them because they saw their father's reaction to the death of his son. And they could hardly bear, even though you know, their feelings for him had been greatly cooled, even then they could hardly bear what they saw happen to their father. And God certainly used it to to hit them deep in their own consciences, in their own hearts. Joseph's sin did not justify the sin of the brothers. And they one day will be humiliated because of it. And they will be forced to confess their sin. And not until that moment will the guilt be removed. That's why it's so important that we read in 1 John 1, 9 that when we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive because if we don't confess it, we bear it. And as we bear it, it weighs us down. It colors our actions. It it, it depresses our spirits. We must constantly confess our sin before God that we might be free. And these brothers would pay a big hunk of their lives living under that kind of a cloud of guilt as a result of their sin this day. God did not cause their sin, but God used their sin to kindle the fire of purification because, think about it for a moment, these 12 sons are going to be the 12 patriarchs, the clan heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the book of Revelation even refers to them relative to the new Jerusalem. And they were going to need a little purification along the way in order to be patriarchs. And so God is taking the sin, the guilt and the the. Uh, the Results of this sin to purify these men, to be the fire of purification in their lives. God may not stop us from committing a sin that may be devastating, but God will use the consequences of that sin to purify our hearts and lives. God is always in the act of redemption. And we need to remember that. If we are God's children, he is in the act of redemption in our lives. And if we bear the consequences of our sin, that is in itself part of that redemption. This will change the lives of those boys. And they will recognize one day that their hatred of their brother was wrong. And their attitude towards their father was wrong no matter what excuse they may have for it or what reason they can point to and say, but we had good justification for feeling this way. God does not accept our justification. No matter how ill people treat us, we must respond as Christ responded. And as he hung on the cross, he said to those who had put him there, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Now that's humanly impossible for us to do but it can be done through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why the scripture tells us to submit to God and resist the devil because that's the only way that the Spirit of God is going to be able to move us in the direction he wants us to go. And that's all part of the trust and obey theme that rings from passage to passage, echoes down through the corridors of history. Trust and obey because they're is no other way. Joseph will experience this in his own life. Joseph needs the purifying fire too because no matter how wonderful he may seem as we read through these passages of Scripture, he was a man in need of cleansing. He was a man in need of purification. He was a man who experienced youthful arrogance and that had to be removed from him in order for him to be all that God would want him to be. So God puts him in the school of humility. Ever been there? Ever done something which came back upon you and made you feel like you were this tall? <laughs> or you made you feel like you want to crawl in the nearest hole? Or be, be like Job who said, I rue the day I was born. Part, all part of God's school of humility. I think that's one of the most important lessons we can learn as believers. One of the primary causes of divisions in the Church of Christ is pride. Not anything else. Not some important doctrine. It's pride. I'm too proud to let it be possible that you're right. My position is the only position. And I'm the only one who understands this passage. You guys are all a bunch of cultists over here, you know. Whatever. I mean, this, it's this arrogance. And I think it's this arrogance that leads to the, the failure of you know, these televangelists and others. I mean, it's their pride that brings about their fall, and as Proverbs tells us that. Pride leads to fall. And it's not because God abandoned them. It's because they're leaning onto their own understanding, which Proverbs tells us not to do. So Joseph's got to learn all these things. And Joseph will learn them the hard way. It's really hard for you or for me to think of any worse condition to to be in than a condition of a slave, particularly when you have to recognize he's being taken from his homeland to a foreign land to be a slave. And there was no ambassador for him to appeal to and say, but look, I'm the son of Jacob. You can't do this to me. (laughs) There was no one to give him any care whatsoever except God in heaven. And he had to learn to depend on God alone, not on his father, not on his dead mother, or on anybody else. He had to learn on God because no one else gave a care about him. But God did, and that's all that matters. And so, two weeks from today, we'll look at what happened to him and the intercession of two of his brothers. Reuben and uh, Judah, which God used to further his purpose because God didn't want him dead and God was able to prevent him from being dead.